think we'll get started. Um, just uh, to welcome everybody, my name's Mark Cosgrove. I'm the cinema curator at Watershed um, in Bristol. Um, and just to say, it's been it's fantastic to have the second one of these conversations about cinema thought and action happening. Um, it's a exciting partnership for us at Watershed with the University of the West of England Philosophy Department, um, and also for this um, virtual uh, online season, um, partnering with Mubi, the curated online streaming platform, um, and say we're delighted in that um, partnership. Uh, I'm just going to welcome Francesco Tava, who's um, from the senior lecturer in the philosophy department, and he is going to be um, the host for this evening. If you've got um, any questions, then do please um, put them in the, the Q&A um, as the, the hour unfolds, um, and Francesco will, will pick them up um, and raise them with the, the other speakers. And as I say, it, it'd be great to know where people are watching from. So if you can, put in the chat where you are. Um, and also if you watch the film um, via movie. Thanks very much. But over to Francesco. Thank you so much, Mark, for the introduction. And welcome to all our guests, speakers, panelists. This is the second installment of Thought in Action, a conversation about cinema uh, this year. So as you know, we have all moved online. And to do that, we have also expanded our collaboration to movie this year so it's very nice to see an independent cinema like watershed uh, a university like ue and now also a very high quality streaming platform collaborating to this project which i think is something very exciting so the idea of coming together and sharing ideas and uh, uh, different expertise as well uh, to discuss films Last time we discussed, uh, well, for maybe the most uh, iconic uh, post-colonial film uh, uh, in history, The Battle of Algiers. And today we continue our exploration of film, of different uh, uh, geographies, geographies of uh, filmmaking. And uh, actually we go to India today with a film by uh, Indian uh, film director uh, Satyajit Rai, Garibayre, The Home and the World. So I hope you have all watched the film, which is available on Mubi. And uh, uh, I, would ju I just want to mention one uh, quote, uh, one very short quote from the film, uh, just to kickstart the conversation. Uh, as you know, the story is about this uh, contrast between uh, Sandeep and uh, Nikhilesh, and Sandeep represents this uh, nationalist spirit of India. And one important line by Sandeep uh, uh, in the middle of the film is, uh, my country is not mine simply because I was born here. It becomes mine only when I am able to win it by force. And this is the sort of dialectical point around which I think the whole plot uh, uh, unfolds and around which all the characters somehow seem to be able to, to interact. Also, the title is very peculiar for me. So Garibayre, which is translated the home and the world, but actually it means a home world. So it's a very strange combination of these two aspects the home, the space of intimacy, of uh, familiarity, and the world as uh, the environment, uh, social, uh, political, to cool, and how does a different aspect of public and private can possibly interact within uh, someone's life. And that's another beautiful uh, uh, representation which I believe uh, emerges in this film. 
Tonight, as usual, we have uh, uh, well um, three distinguished uh, guests who will help us to explore the content and the meaning of this movie. Um, uh, I will present them uh, quickly, and then uh, you will have the chance to ask questions, interact with them uh, freely. So, we have uh, um, Ashfin Emanuel uh, Devasundaram, who is a senior lecturer in uh, world cinema at uh, Queen Mary University of London. Uh, professor Ian Christie. Ian is a professor of film and media history at uh, uh, Burbank University of London. And also we have uh, John James, who is uh, a UWE student, uh, representing a team of students at UWE who, are, who have been working together on uh, uh, Garibayre. And tonight, John will be the spokesperson for his group and will present to us the outcomes of this teamwork and will interact with the speakers uh, in the following discussion. I think that's a great opportunity for students to let them uh, join a panel like this and share ideas, not just with me, their lecturer, but really with uh, a rather broad audience freely and, uh, and independently. All right, so maybe we can start with John after all. So I think that's a, that's a good start if the other speakers uh, don't mind. And later on, I will pass the word to, uh, to Ian and to Ashwin. So, uh, the format is very simple, so uh, brief talks, uh, so, uh, and, you know, just uh, feel ready for uh, a following discussion also. Okay, so John, over to you, thank you very much. Yeah, cheers, Francesco. Um, yeah, so like, I, like as Francesco said, I am part of, I'm only a spokesperson for a group, um, but like we all came together on some collaborative ideas after watching um, Gare Bear, and like we find, we found some like really interesting uh, aspects and we focused uh, after a while we saw a lot of um, talk around conflict and uh, there's a lot of different uh, ways that conflicts presented uh, throughout the film um, and we see that there's many different kinds presented uh, and even from like the first experience of the film onwards it seems like there's a sort of um, snowball effect of uh, conflict after a different form uh, of conflict that reaches eventually a climactic end uh, but in our group discussion, like we found like an underpinning uh, and surrounding uh, specific form of conflict that uh, we think the director tried to put across. Um, and like this begins, like as Francesco mentioned, with the title, um, we ran with the interpretation "Home in the World" um, to sort of uh, as as it presents the sort of the, the two sides, the inside, the outside, um, and like the viewer experiences the title before even watching the film. Uh, so like it, it, before even um, pressing play or sitting down in the cinema. Um, like they are exposed to a kind of back and forth um, that they kind of wrestle with. I think the viewer wrestles with that throughout the rest of the movie. Um, and we can interpret this and we'll go into some interpretations of personal sense, political, religious, geographical and historical senses. Uh, and I think a key one in the personal context is Vimala's journey through Western education um, when it, and how it encourages her to sort of question social conventions and for, she literally quite um, goes from thinking of the home and her home life to thinking of the world and the issues around her. And this ironically leads her to questioning the origins of that education being Britain and the colonial powers over the Indian people. Um, and this leads to a very real personal choice for her in the form of um, choosing between uh, Nikhail and Sandeep. Uh, and this is in part due to their embodying of Western liberalism and nationalism, uh, respectively. And so for Bamala, the personal becomes very political um, and vice versa. And 
to look at like uh, the political conflict specifically, uh, we see the nationalist uh, side and the uh, Nikhil's, uh, Nikhil's uh, liberal uh, tendencies uh, due to his like Western education um, being explicit in the conversations between characters throughout the film and also through the political action that the Swadeshi take uh, against the Muslim traders of British goods. And this sort of further leads into uh, an economic argument that involves class, that it's not just um, down to the sort of clashing of uh, ideology as much as it is the clashing of uh, monetary and economic power. Um, and we see that like uh, Nikhail is a landowner, like he has um, people living on his land and Sandeep uh, presumably comes from a well-off background as well. And this is in contrast to the Muslim traders who like simply can't afford to forego British goods. They can't participate in the boycott, but they also can't participate necessarily in the conversation on whether the boycott even takes place. Um, and this is kind of exemplified in Nikhil's uh, saying that Swadeshi is for those that can afford it. And the Muslims essentially in the film become the scapegoat for um, what is a uh, classist, uh, but also religious and uh, colonialist uh, fueled uh, conflict. Uh, like we see that like the religious and nationalist conflict in the film is fueled essentially by colonialism. And uh, the some people in our group decided that, or came across the idea that it's condoned by certain interpretations of um, religious texts. That being the Bhagavad Gita, um, like key moral text for Hindus, and Sandeep mentions it uh, like towards the end of the movie. Um, and there's interpretations on uh, two sides uh, primarily that there's the pro-conflict, pro-war side, um, and there's the more pacifist stance. And we see that uh, Sandeep is concerned with a just action and uh, a just course of action, but not necessarily the consequences. Like quite literally, like we don't see the resolution of those consequences. Um, we see it spark and climax, and that's as far as uh, the viewer is able to witness. And this culminates in the treasury robbery, um, when we see the consequences of uh, the action of uh, robbing and shooting uh, the treasurer like, is not considered, but the money is needed for a right cause, so therefore it's justified. Um, and these ideas can kind of culminate in uh, the Hindu idea uh, and uh, religious idea of Dharma. Um, uh, in this context, it's to say it's to speak of duty and the soldier's, du soldier's duty is to fight the good fight. And it's not necessarily to consider um, all consequences, because if you're following a just leader and a just cause, then um, your actions in conflict and war can be justified. Uh, and obviously this goes against uh, like other interpretations, uh, like the like an interpretation that Gandhi followed, um, that the Bhagavad Gita provides an allegory for an internal conflict between different forms, higher and lower forms of the self. It's not it would never be to um, speak of explicit outward conflict against uh, other people. No violence would be necessary. Um, so this shows essentially a further conflict, a rooted, embedded conflict, conflict in culture and religion. Um, on conflict itself, on whether conflict is justified or if it is uh, completely forbidden um, in terms of moral standing and action. But of course, all of the conflict in the film uh, seems to be sort of sprouted from and sparked by the colonial powers uh, of Britain over the Indian people and how we see the transition in the early uh, 20th century into neo-colonial uh, tactics and how British products are everywhere. Um, it's explicitly mentioned throughout the film 
uh, showing the economic reliance that India has on Britain. But then also with our protagonist, Bimala, being westernized, uh, Britain exports culture at this point as well. Just as they ex export perfumes, they're exporting a way of life and imposing that explicitly onto the um, colonized people of India. And the conflict becomes less explicitly violent than uh, previous tactics from the British colonizers. But the control uh, becomes economic and cultural, making it uh, the loss of independence if greater, it, like, if not the same, but greater than it would have been before. The, there's a loss of identity and a loss of um, uh, economic standing, uh, as there wouldn't, as there, it may not have been as bad prior. Um, so, so, in this way, we kind of see the endless nature of conflict, how it's never resolved. It just it changes form to meet the conditions and the requirements of the era that it's currently in. Um, and speaking of the era, it, the film, when we see Bimala first leave her personal chambers and private chambers, this is set, this is 1907, November 1907, which is around exactly 40 years prior to uh, India regaining its independence in 1947, but also 50 years after the Indian rebellion of 1857. Um, and this was a rebellion that took place in Bengal, uh, it, the same as the, uh, it's, so the same location as the film. And this was a rebellion against the East India Company, the current, uh, the at the time ruling um, uh, body. Uh, and this resulted eventually the, um, the, in, the rebels lost and this meant that uh, formal British rule took place. And uh, so the, the British Empire took absolute control over India at this time. Um, and this could essentially be seen as one beginning of the, the beginning of uh, absolute, like explicit rule of the British Empire. Um, so in this way, with the end of that being 1947, the film takes place in the middle meaning that we don't see a beginning of a conflict in the wider context or the end of the conflict. We see a midpoint of action and um, uh, rising <coughs> uh, conflict, um, but we don't ever see any kind of resolution. Uh, the transition from uh, the East India Company to British rule, like it shows again the endless nature of conflict. The film uh, is historically in the middle period, but the cycle of conflict, but getting more conflict, is uh, shown in the sort of uh, snowballing uh, of the Swadeshi activism, the greater scale of emerging neo-colonialism. Um, and this kind of evidence is an insistence that conflict can never be truly concluded or resolved. Uh, like each stage throughout the film, we see uh, sort of uh, further uh, concrete examples. The uh, conflict is brought up, it is sparked, and then the resolution never comes. Or if it does, then it transforms itself and it becomes an even more imposing power later on down the line. Um, and in this, like through this, uh, the viewer essentially becomes left with an open question to uh, the nature of conflict. Like it's not answered for them. A lot of the material is there for them to think about it, but um, the thinking has to then be done by the viewer themselves. Uh, and like this is the same question that's posed uh, to the different interpretations of the Bhagavad Gita. The uh, conflict in the first interpretation is all around us. It's ever changing, but never ending. Since it can't be avoided, engaging in conflict for the right cause is necessary. But then on the other side, we could say that there is a lot of outward conflict around us. But unless met with peace, there will only be more death and destruction, as we see throughout the film. So the film shows both answers play out, but neither appears successful, as we see in like Bimala's tragic ending. But surely one path must be chosen. And that seems to be a question that's completely left up to the audience. That's great. Thank you so much, John. Great start. So many themes from politics to religion to philosophy itself. So that's that's amazing. Uh, 
Right. So, Ian, do you want to jump in and uh, add something to this, please? Um, I'll try. <laughs> um, what I really want to contribute to this is it may seem um, to take us away from the film, but we've, we've been uh, what John has done is plunged us right into the heart of the film. So that's OK. Let's hold <laughs> hold those interesting thoughts. Um, and, and I'm sure we'll come back to them. But can I suggest two frames of reference? Which occurred to me. Um, one is about something which might seem rather abstract, and I suppose this comes from an attempt to integrate psychoanalysis and an understanding of film. And it's something I've been thinking about for the last, I don't know, eight or nine years. I'm trying to edit a book about it at the moment, and it's the notion of space, screen space. Most of the time when we watch a film, we're actually watching the representation of spaces, fictional spaces, real spaces, spaces that we're introduced to and walked around or moved around. And I think this is a very neglected feature of thinking about film. There's far too much attention paid to plots and characters, but actually most of the time we're watching space. Um, and the manipulation of that space, the organization of that space is I think really important. Now, uh, I've developed an idea which I call affective space, which is about how space is uh, manipulated, organized, accentuated by the makers of the film, and the art department, the director, etc., scriptwriters, to um, work on us in ways which are not as overt as plot and character. So, for instance, I, I wrote a piece uh, some years ago about the idea of home as a, a prime key anchor for this notion of effective space. Think of the number of films that turn around the notion of home. Think of the different ways in which home can be um, presented on screen. I mean, let me give you one, ex three examples just to make it more concrete. Think about Gone with the Wind. Uh, the mega blockbuster Gone with the Wind revolves almost entirely around this concept of a place, Tara, which is so central to the emotions of the central character that we, we empathize as much with the place, the building, the home, as we do with any of the characters. We see a lot of it on screen, we see it from the outside, we see it from the inside. Take two other examples, just to introduce a bit of space into this. Take the example, for instance, of um, John Ford's great Western, The Searchers. I think everybody knows The Searchers by now because it's been canonized as Ford, the one, the great film of Ford's that we can all agree is perhaps the greatest. Um, who can forget the opening of The Searchers, the presentation of the little house on the prairie, the framing of seeing Ethan Edwards appear, enter the home, this little archetypal home and who can forget the end of the film where he leaves and we look, we're still looking out um, as he has departed. So that's, that's a very dramatic way in which Ford uses um, a visual and of course a, an empathetic sense of home to frame his story because Ethan, the central character, is a, a homeless man. He's a man without a home. Another example would be Tarkovsky. Uh, Tarkovsky's greatest film, um, uh, The Mirror, which again is about a kind of uh, an autobiographical psychic search for home. The central character who stands for Tarkovsky himself is displaced 
and has shattered memories of a home from childhood which he can't regain. The film is all about trying to get back to an image of security which is constantly being shattered and undermined. Now, you can see how, why I think of this in relation to Home in the World, obviously. Home in the World, and, and in fact, in this, this piece I wrote um, some uh, a few years ago, I, I, I pinpointed Home in the World as belonging to a very particular kind of film, cinema, which absolutely centers on the home, where the home is the film. And of course, as you know, that's literally true, where we spend 95% of our time in Ray's film inside the home. The home becomes both a, a place of security and also a place that is disturbed. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot we could say about the architecture of this home that we're presented. We don't see it as a totality. We see it as a series of disconnected spaces. Uh, perhaps the two most important ones are the, the salon or the drawing room where these crucial meetings take place, which, which Sandip, in a sense, violates when he comes to visit uh, and takes the relationship with Vimala further than perhaps I, well, perhaps that she had expected or intended. It's like a sort of forced entry uh, or a transgressive entry. But I, for me, the central axis of the, the home and world relationship is the corridor, the passageway. And there's that wonderful moment in the film where um, Bimala first enters the world, which she has been kept secluded from, on the arm of her husband. And there's a wonderful piece of narration over it in her voice, retrospective voiceover as she pro progresses from the home into the world, which will disturb her home-based world, but also, of course, open her up to the conflicts of the world, which she, in a sense, has to participate in. So that's one kind of perspective on the film. And I just I think that it's a very static film, ostensibly. It's, it's Ray's last film, effectively, well, more or less his last film. It's a film which he fell ill while making. And of course, that's often been used as a, an excuse for it being such a, a static dialogue-based film. But I, I don't accept that. I think there's no reason whatsoever not to accept that it's exactly what he wanted to do, which was to enclose his film in this very detailed, um, tangible sense of the world, the world of Bimala, the world of that her husband has created, but also the world of India, which is about, which is being disrupted by forces that have been set in motion, of course, on the outside, the latest wave of, of uh, these forces. I just want to add one other thought, though, another external perspective, which I've been thinking about ever since uh, I rewatched the film recently. And that's a curious coincidence. Uh, my wife, she was watching it with me. She said, when was it made? And I snatched a figure out of my memory. It's completely wrong. <laughs> I placed it much earlier. Before I looked and said, my God, it's 1984. I said, do you realize what 1984 is? It's the year of A Passage to India. <laughs> Why do I say that? Because I've, I've written a book about uh, the designer, John Box, who designed David Lean's film, um, Passage to India. And there's a strange sense, this is what I'm struck by, in which both of these are films out of time. Uh, Ray's film looks, does not look like a film made in 1984. It looks like a film probably made considerably earlier. And of course, we know that he'd carried the project around for, for many years. He was going back to a script he'd written 
decades before. Passage to India is a, a, a strangely dislocated film. Um, it was much criticized at the time for being a kind of patronizing um, view of India. Uh, why adapt Foster's novel, 1920s novel, in the 1980s? What kind of picture is Lean trying to show through the eyes of, um, uh, of Foster? And it's a complex film. You have to unpack it, just as you have to unpack Home in the World, of course. And there is something that links the two films. The same actor appears in both, Victor Banerjee. Bizarrely, I haven't looked into the chronology of this, he actually appears in both films. He is the, the husband in, in Home in the World, in Ray's film, and he is Aziz, the strangely disconcerted and disconcerting um, Indian intellectual in A Passage to India, who is caught between, as it were, the two cultures and suffers through being caught and suffers through coming close to the central character of a passage to India. I would love to, I've never read anything about by, by Banerjee about what his feelings were about appearing in these two films, which must have been made very close together, but it's an extraordinary thing which links them, I think. And from my point of view, I'm struck by the sense in which they both invite us to look back through a time tunnel series of articulated articulations back at this pre-independence, obviously, um, the 1907 of Tagore's novel and the, what, early 20s, I suppose, of um, uh, Foster's novel, which we're looking back at from the perspective of 1984. It's, it's a very interesting series, pair of perspectives, which, which I can't get out of my mind. I'll stop there. Thank you so much, Ian, that was great. And I agree with you that theme of space is central. And uh, interestingly enough, it's not maybe very popular today, but at the beginning of cinema, that was one of the few, one of the first uh, topics which really captured the imagination of philosophers, of theoreticians like Bergson, for instance. The, the first comments on film history were based on uh, uh, ideas on time and space. So that okay. was the really something that uh, stimulated the imagination of the of the observer so and also this idea of home in in a in ray so it's quite evident also in other films i think like the stranger for example so i agree absolutely that it's not uh, the idea of this statistics is not motivated by any reason but the the real interest in this sort of private space and how it is uh, developed how people can enter the space which is also the main topic of uh, the stranger so, and we see the same here, I guess, to some extent. Right. Okay, great. Uh, uh, now, can we continue with uh, uh, Ashvin? So, please, thank you so much. Thank you, Francesco. It's a very topical and timely theme and film, this being the uh, year that marks the birth centenary of Satyajit Ray. So, um, all of the uh, points that were discussed and mentioned earlier are, you know, incredibly relevant. This is a film that it's also very generative and very transdiscursive, you know, gauging but, but what John said and Ian has just said. So I'd like to touch upon uh, very briefly three points. The clairvoyance of this film in relation to political discourse, Ray's representation of women, strong women, and his signature filmmaking style. So Gore Boyre is uh, very prescient for me in its portrayal of Hindu-Muslim discord and the rise of majoritarian and fundamentalist Hindu ideology 
that largely mirrors uh, the current state of play in BJP-ruled India today. So uh, Tagore's novel, Gora, which was published in 1910, is an apt companion piece to Gore uh, Bayre and its visualization of the Swadeshi anti-colonial movement. So for me, Gora is actually a revealing Rosetta Stone of sorts to decoding the ideological and philosophical subtext in the film. Gora also challenges the idea of India as being fashioned in the crucible of Hinduism. And as uh, Tanya Sarkar notes in the essay, Rabindranath's Gora and the intractable problem of Indian patriotism, Gora rejects the attempt to collapse, I quote, the land and people of India into the image of a freshly coined goddess of the motherland, unquote. So in the film, Nikhil articulates a similar rejection. He just, you know, totally rejects the idea of India as mother goddess. Uh, Gori Boyre also uh, deploys its deployment of this Swadeshi rallying cry of Bande Mathuram or Hail to the Motherland is particularly relevant in this context because uh, when you consider the slogans appropriation and transmogrification into a signifier and a shibboleth of uh, Hindu ultranationalism in contemporary India. The other significant facet of uh, Ray's corpus is his commitment to espousing emancipatory narratives of agency-bearing central female characters. Uh, Bimala is a uh, case in point. Devi, Thin Kanya, Charulata, these are films, a handful of examples of Ray's films that feature strong women. Charu Lata in particular is an essential filmic companion piece to Gore Boire. In these films, kind of consanguinity of cloistered female protagonists who are irre irrepressible in their desire to break through the strictures imposed on them by a wider patriarchal milieu. Also worth mentioning the late great actor Shomitra Ch Chatterjee, who reprises the role of the provocator and disruptor, the violator, as Ian rightly mentions, of the domestic equilibrium in both these films. I'd um, also like to touch upon form and style, Ray's distinctive use of lighting and cinematography to delineate interior and exterior space, uh, kind of punctuating the visual aesthetic of the film. Um, Ray has indicated how in collaboration with the cinematographer Shubrata Mitra, he utilized the signature bounced light technique before Ingmar Bergman and Sven Nyquist implemented this diffused light strategy in Through a Glass Darkly. So strategic use of uh, close-up shots of the female physiognomy is another filmic trademark that Ray shares with Bergman. One of the evocative moments in Gore Bayre is the sequence where uh, Bimala secretly watches Sandeep's rousing speech. Natural lines of light and shadow are kind of splayed across her face, and they seem to mimic the film's dialectic of confinement and liberation, the home and the world. So I'll stop there. I'm sure there'll be lots of questions, and so happy to kind of engage uh, on you, that Thank note. You. Thank you also for uh, bringing in some uh, context about this uh, fundamental, uh, well, context between uh, Muslim and, uh, and Hindu. Uh, elements within the film, which of course is uh, absolutely central. Uh, great, right, so many ideas. So uh, feel free people to start uh, writing questions in the Q&A session. So I will go through them uh, and I will uh, direct them to our uh, speaker. So I'm sure this will take a moment, of course, that's the beauty or <laughs> the non-beauty of, uh, of the system, but, uh, but that's fine. 
Actually, what you mentioned, Ash, about this technique, uh, I haven't thought about that, honestly, but now, now that you mention it, uh, also the scene when uh, uh, during uh, uh, the talk at the market and there is the camera moving uh, from the speaker to the faces of these Muslim merchants and the use of light is absolutely incredible there. So it's really the first thing I thought, this is very uh, Bergman, actually. So there's an incredible contrast of light and, uh, and shadow. And, uh, and that was also the contrast between the warts, the very uh, talkative character of uh, Sandil and the silence of the merchants, which uh, do not need to talk. Actually, they reply with this uh, very dispassionate gaze rather than, and only at the end, someone replies with a couple of words saying that, no, this doesn't work for them. So I think the contrast, the way in which the scene also with uh, the circle uh, of, of flags where people are supposed to throw their, their stuff. So the composition of that scene, I think it's absolutely stunning. So, and also very dynamic, much more than uh, all the rest of the film. So that's a different, stark difference between uh, the different phases of, uh, of the plot, I guess, right? Okay, so while we're waiting for some questions to, to flow in, so perhaps, uh, do you also want to add something also in reference to what everybody else has said so far? So feel free to add some thoughts to some comments. I mean, I could go on for like two hours, but I don't want to. So, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, um, if, if I can just say something, um, it, it's really interesting to hear to hear um, Ashwin you know, bring up bring some uh, bring a, an Indian critical perspective, if I can put it that way, to, uh, and tell us things about the film because when I was very young, Satyajit Ray was of course a discovery and he was the way that we discovered um, a completely different cinema. And of course he stood notoriously for um, Indian cinema for a long time and then the wheel turned and I think there was a tremendous reaction against him, uh, which I, you know, resent <laughs> and I've, I've talked to, to Scorsese about this, uh, my various conversations with him, because Scorsese also has enormous respect for um, and feeling for Ray. And Scorsese and I belong to the same generation. And it was really important to um, for us to, to discover Ray's vision of India. And I suppose I, I remember being very critical of a, a, a biography being written by a colleague of mine at Birkbeck, who, who is an Indian historian, who was extremely critical of Ray. In, in many ways. And I said, well, you're not remembering his important role um, in bringing in certain Indian themes and perspectives to a wider world. So of course he's going to kind of suffer from you know, a rejection. And I think I was delighted to be um, encouraged to go back to looking at this, this late Ray film. And in fact, it set me thinking about going back through uh, so many earlier ones too, which I haven't looked at for a long time, because I do think that we've got to remember this um, this role, this this very difficult role of being a cultural mediator, of having so many expectations and so many you know weighed upon your shoulders, which was, was a burden that Ray accepted, of course, and he understood, but at the same time, it um, it perhaps was a burden to him, and I wonder if it if it was if he felt that he had to be the, uh, the spokesman for so much of Bengali and Indian culture um, to, to a wider world. I wonder if he suffered from that. For me, what's really interesting at the heart of the film is the fact that 
what it uh, and I haven't read the novel, of course, so I don't know whether this is in Tagore or not, which is that um, Nikish's partial liberation of his wife is doesn't go far enough. He has given her the the Western education. He has given her a sense of freedom. Once he starts to activate it and give her a real sense of freedom, of course, it all blows up in his face. And so at the core of the film is this notion that a partial, a gesture towards liberation won't work. And the consequences may not be what you've expected. Yeah, yeah. Actually, this links very well to what Mark just wrote in the chat about the reception of the film in India also to better understand how this can be encased within the context of uh, Indian history. And uh, uh, Mark asks, do you have a sense of how the film was received in India when it was released? Did it connect uh, with uh, uh, then current politics or was it views, viewed as a historical? So more a film for the present or more a film just to describe uh, a past? Maybe Ash, do you want to yes. reply to this? Yeah. Yeah, um, I've just written a journal article about the philosophical cross-currents between Ingmar Bergman and Satyajit Ray. They were contemporaries, they were mutual admirers of uh, each other's work. And uh, so it, it is just a paradox that both the filmmakers uh, received very ambivalent treatment in their own countries. So uh, they were far more celebrated on the International Film Fest Festival circuit. Uh, and that is certainly the case with Ray because he was shunned in favor of more commercial Hindi cinema at the time. And he was kind of uh, designated as, you know, his films were designated as films for the English speaking middle class intelligentsia. And, you know, who, uh, whilst the masses kind of preferred commercial Hindi films, which later on became Bollywood. But that said, uh, this particular film, I think, received a fairly good reception. Uh, primarily because of the situation surrounding it, the fact that he had suffered massive heart attacks uh, and there was a sympathy wave that led to people wanting to uh, watch the film. The other uh, dimension was a more prurient kind of incentive because it featured the first kiss in a Satyajit Ray film. So people then, you know, kind of wanted to go and watch this film. So I think the reception was um, a bit more amplified when you think of his previous kind of... Uh, uh, post-colonial art house films, Pathur, Panchali, and, and so on. So I think, yeah, there was a kind of uh, more magnified uh, audience for this particular film in 1984. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, we do have a couple of great questions in the Q&A, actually. So we'll go through them and uh, feel free to add uh, whatever you like. So the first one is from Caroline from Somerset. Uh, she says, uh, Bimala seems vulnerable and easily manipulated because of her new situation. Is she not a victim of this and the traditional conditioning? Also, I found the ending too swift. Actually, I thought quite something similar when I watched it the first time. So you talked, I don't know if uh, Ian or, or John actually, or Ashwin, uh, about how uh, the strong character, strong female characters of this film but on the other hand, one might uh, contend that actually the figure of Bimala is also characterized by a certain weakness in the way in which she is uh, manipulated uh, and the way she moves from one character to the other, from one ideology to the other, really. So she's in between these two clashing stones, basically. So uh, why, why would you describe her as a strong uh, character in, uh, in, this, uh, in this picture? That's a question for the panel, so. 
whoever <laughs> wants to join in, please. <laughs> well, I suppose um, like, when it comes to uh, like Bimala's vulnerability, like, it's um, <clears throat> something that like I noticed like on my first watching, like um, not that long ago now, like it was uh, sort of the there was a confusing element of uh, motivations I found. Like it was only like really on the second watching and investigating it that I found um, the like the sort of like the depths of different nuances of the characters. And I think with Bimala, it's um, interesting that there's a level of education, but of course it's a, it's a sort of um, sanitized Western uh, like kind of liberal education in a way that she doesn't necessarily, uh, she's not going to see the full nature of the world. She's going to see it from, like I said, a cleansed sort of view. And I think that when it comes to um, the very sort of harsh um, reality for like people that ha- live just very different lives from her, like, that they have to um, contend with uh, just daily trading, and uh, like, they know where they like where they buy their like clothes from, and all of these different things that she enters the world relatively unprepared, despite like however long that uh, she had in training for it, and um, it's. It, it, there was a discussion um, that I had with my groupmates that it, we didn't want to like say like we, we didn't want to seem insensitive with it because uh, like it's I could never know how like that experience but it almost seems like um, Bimala is presented to the world uh, ideologically uh, well blank like without an ideology like uh, she understands a lot of things like she's um, given uh, the opportunity to understand uh, and to learn um, and she even knows about. Uh, um, certain movements in the Swadeshi movement but this level like there's only um, a certain level of uh, experience that you need to be able to um, I suppose have the um, the like the ability to um, like push back like and to like hold your own standpoints and understand what is true and uh, like what is the idea of propaganda that's brought up a lot the idea of propaganda and uh, it's something that I think the character falls prey to not of her like own fault by any means um but because she's given this very sort of um uh, telescopic view of the world like she's not allowed like she doesn't have this very wide breadth of understanding that's a great metaphor a telescopic telescopic view of the world very bergmanian as well actually so the idea of the mirror fantastic thank you uh, john uh, anything you want to add uh, yeah i see ashwin uh, i agree with uh, what john's just said to begin with um Bimala is positioned as a tabula rasa, a blank canvas, but there is a pivotal point when she develops agency. She decides to chase her passions and pleasure and, you know, kind of um, profess her interest in Sandeep. When you consider the zeitgeist, this is quite revolutionary for a woman, you know, in a very gendered patriarchal society to even take that step even with the kind of sanction of her husband or the, the kind of, uh, she's got a very liberal progressive husband. But despite that, it would have seemed incredibly kind of uh, earth shattering for her to indulge in uh, an extramarital relationship. So I think that in some measure, when you consider the social and historical context is quite uh, agency bearing in terms of the representation of Bimla. She becomes a causal agent and she actually kind of, you know, causes uh, events to transpire, to turn on their head. And by the end of the film, by the denouement, she is kind of in a position where she has literally called, caused the plot to, to turn to twist. So I think on that, on several levels, you know, she does have a lot of, she is empowered in 
some measure, at least by the end of the film, and disempowered simultaneously. I think it reflects an ambivalence that characterizes Tagore's own kind of sensibilities, his political uh, worldview, in a sense, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, it does, absolutely. I think what's what's also interesting, and, and this is not just on Bimala, but it's also that that her husband Nikesh, we we see him as a kind of uh, somewhat dewy-eyed, um, well-meaning, liberal, progressive uh, husband and uh, estate owner, and only well into the, the film do we learn, in fact, that he has tried very hard to initiate a whole series of reforms uh, to 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 gear up Indian production to become self-sufficient, something that precedes the Swadeshi movement. And it failed because he didn't have the knowledge, the competence, the experience. At least that's what we are told, that he tried and he failed, but he did at least try. And I think that mirrors in a strange way uh, Bimala's position that she, of course, that she has a lot of education, certainly for an Indian woman of her class and period, but she has no practical experience. And of course, she is at the mercy, if you like, of, of uh, oratory, of propaganda, of persuasion. And she's, we, we see, we feel her being seized by this because for the first time she's seeing a passionate statement of something outside in the real world, not something which is mediated through, for instance, Miss Gilby. Miss Gilby, who's a very minor character who disappears early on, intertextually, of course, Miss Gilby is a fascinating figure because she's played by Felicity, by, by Jennifer Kendall which links it back to the world of, you know, the um, Shakespeare Waller and the, the, um, those, uh, that other little bridging period between Indian culture and um, Anglo-Saxon culture. And I find that really fascinating too. It's a very small little sort of footnote at mm. the beginning of the film, but it helps to, to relate the film to different layers of re the representation of the Anglo-Indian relationship. And speaking about secondary characters, there is also another question in the Q&A uh, about uh, um, uh, Nikesh's uh, sister-in-law, actually. So, yep. yes. Anonymous question, uh, uh, what are your thoughts on the role uh, of uh, uh, Bari Rani, Nikesh's sister-in-law, and how at the end of the movie, Bimala essentially becomes her with short hair and draped in white? It's a reference to the death of... Uh, of the protagonist, or sort of hint to that, perhaps. So what do you think about it? I mean, it is a very strange, fast, swift conclusion, right? I, I have no idea about the conclusion of the novel, so I don't know if there's, if there's more plotting that is played out, obviously. It's, it's quite a shocking ending. It, it's, a, it's a bold piece of primary symbolism. She goes from being... Um, a three-dimensional, richly realized, even very slightly westernized figure. She becomes, as you say, the ghost. She becomes a widow. And it's an astonishing ellipsis that we don't see her husband's death, of course. We simply learn it from the fact that, you know, he's going out to meet what we gather is a certain death, and that's simply signaled by her appearing in white. It, it's astonishingly abrupt. For a long film, suddenly we're cut back at the end and there's no space left for actually i mean uh, this is just a thought that occurs to me it's, it's rather like that very strange coda in um, passage to india 
if you happen to know Passage to India, which is a very strange coda set somewhere else, looking back at these strange events, this strange uh, microcosm that happened back in the main plot of the film. But this is much more savage. This is much more dramatic. Also, the way Sand the way Sandeep leaves is very yes, hiding off. <laughs> money, good. See ya. It's done. So I made a mess, but who cares? So I'm out of here. Exactly. So that's another very interesting. I think uh, that's something I read. Uh, I forgot where, but I think that Tagore said that uh, the two characters of the film, Sandeep and uh, Nikilesh, uh, uh, both represent uh, different parts of his own personality. So there's different uh, perceptions also because they're both nationalists in a certain sense, right? Yeah. Just in, in very different ways. And they are both ambivalent towards also Western culture, right? So should we just reject it? Should we make something out of it? So that's another very interesting uh, psychological aspect of, uh, of the film. Absolutely, Francesco. I think um, Nikhil is a mouthpiece for Tagore. He's literally articulating his own political and uh, sensibilities through um, the character of Nikhilesh in the sense of Tagore's own ambivalence. He was uh, invested deeply in the uh, struggle, the anti-colonial struggle, but he was uh, definitely a secularist and internationalist and a true Renaissance man. So for him, he was a man ahead of his time, very avant-garde. And uh, I think therefore stood apart from some of the more kind of violent uh, currents that kind of undergirded the, the um, Swadeshi movement at that point in, in time. But also in relation to the depiction of the system law, I just felt she was a bit of a cipher uh, to kind of drive the plot along and not a fully developed, well-rounded character. But I thought at the end, the fact that Bimala becomes the sister-in-law is, is a sense of what goes around comes around because there is a sequence where the sister-in-law looks at her kind of preening in front of the mirror and says, you, you are so lucky and you know to have a husband such as this. But it also reminded me of Deepa Mehta's film, Water, about widows who are not forbidden in uh, Hindu custom to remarry and have to then wear the white garb and kind of cut their hair. So uh, again, linking to uh, another social uh, situation or a ritualistic practice in Hinduism and Tagore were very committed to exposing the hypocrisy of some of these, you know, um, religious practices and rituals. And he was a real reformer as, as such. But for Tagore, at the heart of his ideology was a commitment to uh, grassroots um, emancipation, empowerment, improvement. For him, the villagers were, you know, it's, it was all about performativity rather than, you know, the hypocrisy that's exhibited by a character like Sandeep, who manipulates the subaltern, you know, uh, marginalized characters and speaks for them. But essentially, he is also a member of uh, the Badrulok or the, you know, the landed gentry or the middle class, the bourgeoisie. So I think there are so many different layers to unpack in this film. Hmm. Yeah. It almost takes some uh, humoristic aspect at some point when uh, the young uh, uh, rebel says that uh, um, Sandeep likes to travel in first class, right? So there is this <laughs> hypocritical aspect of the character, you know, beyond the mask, which really makes the character even more complex and less... Uh, pompous, less uh, bombastic in a certain sense, which is... Uh... Well, there's, a, there's a reversal. I mean, what we, we learn more uh, as the film progresses, obviously, about both the characters, about both Nikolesh and Sandip. We, we first see Nikolesh as this rather passive character. We assume that he has... that he's simply standing 
outside of the real political sphere. And we assume that Sandeep is a firebrand who believes everything he says. And then we gradually realize that, in fact, beneath the surface, Sandeep is hypocritical. And of course, they're friends. They come from the same class. They come from the same background. And that's the kind of starting premise of the film and perhaps the thing that actually kind of structures it, that these are men of a certain class who have chosen uh, different paths, but maybe not so different. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Which, which I guess Ray would have, I mean, Ray makes this film as a relative, as a, an elder statesman himself. Um, I, I don't know. I haven't tried to find out about what, whether he took the script that I believe he wrote in the 1940s or 50s, very long ago, Ash is nodding, yeah. And uh, it must be very strange to take out a script like that and to make it um, so many decades later with so much that has happened both, you know, politically and personally. And I'm reminded a little bit of, of um, that strange last film of, of Dreyer's, uh, Audette, uh, uh, um, sorry, Gertrude, which again has that very strange uh, um, backward looking um, stance. It's made from a very much later perspective, but it's like it's preserving the emotions and the strange social, social customs of a much earlier period, which have been carried forward and are being held up for inspection. Mm. Yeah, in fact, now that the more I think about it, Gertrude does seem another useful reference point. That reminds me of a point that John raised actually about this idea of action in the film, which uh, he also uh, related to the to the content of uh, and the principles of the Bhagavad Gita, right? The fact that only action counts, not the outcomes of the action, and that's a strong point that uh, Sandeep makes. So, and it seems that the whole uh, agency of the character is built around this notion. is strongly anti-consequentialist uh, principle of action. But in the end, and that's about the development of the characters, the one who acts like that is not Sandeep, but is actually a Nikolesh. Sandeep acts uh, very instrumentally by deciding to leave at some point to go somewhere else. So he's the consequentialist here. On the other hand, uh, the one who really takes in, into account only his action and not the possible outcome is Nikolesh, who decides to go to death, basically because he thinks it's right and not uh, taking into account any possible danger that this action might, uh, might possibly involve. So that's another turning point, I think, between uh, an exchange between the two characters, which is uh, fascinating, yeah. I think um, and like an interesting point on the um, like use of the Bhagavad Gita is that uh, like it pre the prerequisite for um, like just action to some degree is that um, there is, uh, that you don't, um, that you're not following under an unjust uh, leader. And the fact that like by the end of the film, we realize that that like if Sandeep's anything, he's an unjust and unrighteous leader. Uh, and that it's the the followers of um, the Spadeshi movement in the in the film, like the student, like that's the sort of um it's like it's a, it's a sad thing to see, like in the um you have uh, acts of violence and uh, like supposed just action uh, for a man that wants to be able to take a first class ticket. And uh, like it's something that um, essentially like it's it's I, I feel like like on the second watching of this film that I that I had like it was very hard not to see it as um, just a set up tragedy like from from the get go like the like every happy moment that you see like you realize ah yeah like there's gonna be um, the 
slap back in the face within like 50 minutes <laughs> but yeah i have a question I'd, I'd like to throw to 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 ash if i may um yeah, absolutely because uh because i i um it's a long time since i've seen many of the ray films and this has been what's so interesting to come back and uh rediscover their richness but charolata is the most obvious um reference point because charolata means the, oh, the, the english title is the lonely wife isn't it yeah and in many ways it follows a similar pattern well not a similar pattern but it's a similar premise can you say anything about your your sense of the relationship between that and uh, this film? Yeah, I think that the immediate reaction is to gesture towards Shomitra Chatterjee's character. He plays a very similar role as the outsider, kind of um, violating the interior space, in, even in Charulata. So he's literally, you know, replicating his his role. Or um, actually, it's a reverse because Charulata came first and Gloria uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bayre came after. But it, they are almost mirror images. And I think one needs to watch both films to kind of formulate a more comprehensive or nuanced understanding of what uh, um, Ray is trying to say visually and also thematically. Uh, so it's a similar premise. Again, you have Charu Lata, uh, the eponymous character. She is confined in her home. There's a very iconic uh, expository sequence, opening sequence, where she's uh, looking at the outside world through her spyglass, a little... A telescope, and that's her only kind of exposure to the world outside. The layout, the architecture of the house in uh, Charulatha is uncannily similar to the layout. You mentioned the liminal passageway as well, which I, I agree with, you know, that kind of painted glass uh, um, kind of throughway that leads between the home and uh, the outside world. That again uh, brings to bear. The caged parrot is another trope in, in the films. But also the progressive, liberal, long-suffering husband is replicated in, in Charulata. And that husband, again, emerges as uh, the morally superior one. And there is an attempt at reconciliation again in Charulata between the estranged wife and um, uh, the, the husband. So it, it, it just seems very uncanny. The, the, both films are, have their own singular and individual qualities. I think there's a lot more politics in... Um, Gore Bayre, but that said, the husband in Charulata is, he runs his own political press, so he's very idealistic nominally, but he doesn't really go out and he's not really active, actively involved. So uh, I think Tagore is mulling to himself this idea of uh, being an armchair kind of activist and, you know, helping the national scores, but nevertheless, you know, doing it from a dif distance and not involving oneself in, in the actual uh, deeds. So uh, these are some of the uh, kind of similarities, but also the portrayal of space, uh, which you, you described uh, at the start of this discussion. Uh, if you look at Charu Lata, that's a black and white film, but it is very rich in its evocation of the uh, domestic environment, uh, very ornate uh, objects uh, across the floor, indicating the opulence of the family and therefore the class distinctions, they are privileged. And this is something that I think Tagore was reflecting on his own aristocratic antecedents. He was a person who then kind of left all of that behind in favor of finding a more kind of, you know, uh, or identifying with the grassroots and uh, rural sex sectors of uh, India. So, yeah, um, I think, as I said, I would consider the two films to be companion pieces and they need to be viewed uh, in tandem. And they form this kind of tapestry and of deeper understanding uh, of um, you know time as well, temporality. 
Uh, you, you also talked about how, you know, these films are portals into time, India's history. And John mentioned uh, the first war of uh, independence in 1857. And then you, we have so many timelines that we're dealing with, uh, Sudeshi and uh, a film that's made in 1984, but looks like it was made much earlier. So I think we are playing here with both space and time. And, and of course, interestingly, Charolata probably had a much um, much more enthusiastic reception because of the time it appeared, because it was dealing with issues that were new and topical. And uh, it's it's fascinating to think of Ray coming back to, as you very uh, well describe it, to the same setup, but 20 years later, um, when the world has moved on. And Ray's external admirers, of course, have got older. <laughs> And he hasn't perhaps recruited the new, um, the new admirers from a younger generation. Uh, so there, there are there are there's a lot to think about about the reception of films and how films can age uh, and miss their audience. But then, of course, thanks to the magic <laughs> of video and streaming, we can rediscover them. Absolutely. Um, but which is this is you know it's not trivial. It's it's important because um, once upon a time these films were. Very difficult to access. Uh, I'm doing a lecture, a Gresham College lecture, which is online on Monday. So I've been thinking a lot about this. And in fact, I'm talking a lot about Mubi in this lecture. <laughs> um, so the the kind of access that we have, when you look at the kind of screen Mubi, you realize the possibilities of digging down. If you have the motivation, you can access all of these films with no difficulty at all. Once upon a time, they were impossible to see. Uh, I was involved in the, the very first stage of the video publishing revolution. And I remember when we put out films by Ray, we did put out several of his films. They were otherwise inaccessible. When we started publishing those in the in the uh, 1990s, it was, became possible to see some of Ray's films for the first time. And I realized that, you know, the lack of access was a huge problem. Video and now, now streaming, of course, has to, to a large extent erased that. But what we have to do is we have to nourish the motivation to go and follow these paths through this rich um, archive of material, which is lying there in front of us. But we have to know where to look and what to look for. Absolutely. If I could add to that, um, the UK Asian Film Festival is running from the sixth, uh, the 26th of May to the 6th of June. And the theme of the festival is Ray of Hope. So if uh, any of the at attendees are interested in you know, discovering the world of Ray, um, I think you know, some of their films and events will be of interest. Um, the UK Asian Film Festival website has um, all of the information. Wonderful. Great, thank you so much. I hope there is some uh, movie friends in the audience that will, will appreciate this uh, concluding remarks. So, but I completely agree. No, absolutely. That's another way to look at the film. And we should really take advantage of this. Um, Steve Barry asks, I hope Rai, Ray of Hope will be on movie. I don't know, actually, but have a look. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Try. Uh, well, I would like to thank our speakers so much. This was a very, uh, well, great and um, thought-inspiring conversation, which could possibly go on forever. But uh, I know I'm conscious of time and we have to wrap it up. So thank you, really. Thank you, uh, John. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Ashwin, for your thoughts, your, uh, uh, your collaboration tonight. 
Uh, let me just uh, uh, remind you that uh, the next event of uh, Thought in Action is in a two-week time. We'll be watching and discussing uh, Zombie Child. So a totally different genre, if you want, but another interesting film within the frame of uh, colonialism and the post-colonial struggle, broadly conceived, of course. So uh, you will receive uh, some news. Please follow us uh, on the uh, Watershed website, on Twitter, on, uh, on Facebook, so you know where we are virtually, if not physically. So please uh, uh, stay tuned. Uh, more speakers, more thoughts will, will come up, and uh, that's going to be great. <laughs> All right, so uh, thank you everyone for coming. Uh, really, we appreciate that. Uh, uh, thank you again to our speaker. Thank you to Mark and the Watershed for hosting, to Mubi for uh, providing the film. And I will see you very soon. Thank you. Take care.